which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. You may be seated. So this morning, um, we're going to have Travis come in um, and open the word for us this morning. Let me see if I can get this right. It is Community Bible Church. That's where um, Travis is from. And for those of you uh, who may remember, a few months back, their pastor had actually had passed away. Um, is his name Steve? Steve, yeah, we prayed for him and uh, his family. Um, and he had sort of inoperable brain cancer and passed away. And um, Travis told me that uh, the transition is actually um, is not easy, but it's going well um, there with having um, one of the associate pastors um, has, has taken up the pulpit. He was a part of that. So I'm sure that um, you can also talk to Travis more about what's happening there. But we're really grateful to have him uh, to come and open up the word. Um, and you probably all remember some of his uh, Davy Tree stories. And um, Travis told me this Friday is his last day at Davy Tree. And um, so at the end of the month, and uh, he'll be starting up his, new, his own uh, tree business July 1, right? Something like that. So um, we're excited to have you here, and uh, we're grateful that your wife and all your kids um, could come. So please come and open up the word for us, Travis. Well, good morning. I am uh, very excited about this passage we're going to look at this morning. However, it's, uh, that's interesting that the thing I seem to be most noted for is my comment about the frigidity of the last visit here. I had just come back from Ukraine and it snowed the whole time I was there and I was warm and fine and I got here and was freezing for two or three days and then got in here, it was really cold and Yes, no, I'm not cold at all this morning. I feel fine. <laughs> oh, my goodness. 
We're going to look at Revelation 4. And, uh, man, this is a fascinating passage. Um, we get a, we're going to get a window into an effort to describe the holy majesty of God Himself on His throne. So I titled this, The Sovereign Ruling Majesty of of God. Let me give you the outline, and uh, it has three main parts. Verse one: Christ reveals the vision of the Father. Verse two: Second, the Spirit gives and enables the vision of the Father, and then disproportionately larger is the third point which is verses 3 through 11, the majestic glory of God in unparalleled splendor and absoluteness is ruling by sovereign will. The majestic glory of God in unparalleled splendor and absoluteness is ruling by by sovereign will. And each of these I'll say again in a little bit. And within that last section, we're going to look at verse 3, the brilliance of the one on the throne. And then verses 4 through 7, the beings around the throne. And then verses 8 through 11, the activity around the the throne. So what I hope to do is to take our hearts where God intended to take our hearts by recording this in His Word. And that is to take the eyes of our heart and let us see what we can see of God. And I hope that you will do the appropriate response after this vision. So, the main topic of this text is the sovereign majesty of God, particularly the Father. And the emphasis is that He is sovereignly ruling or controlling. And we can see this in the use of the word throne. In this chapter, throne is used 14 times. Twelve times in reference to the Father, and two times in reference to the 24 elders who are given thrones. And that's important, and we'll look at that. There are 47 times in the book of Revelation the word throne. Fourteen used in this chapter. It's only mentioned 15 other times in the whole New Testament. And so the question is, why? Why does God pin this by His Spirit? John is emphasizing something. And why? And why particularly so many references to the Father here in this chapter? And the answer, I think, lies in chapters 6 through 19. You and I all experience trouble, 
tribulations, sufferings at some measure in our life and by varying degrees for each of us. But if you read this book and you try to feel it as you read it, by the way, don't read the Bible without trying to feel it. It was not intended to be read that way. So when you try to go through this book and try to grasp what is happening to human beings in the historic timeline of humanity. And it is staggering. It's horrific. Very soon, chapter 6, what? Either a quarter or a third, I can't remember, of, of mankind as is present is going to be gone. Dead. So, maybe two billion people? Dead. Just like that. Later, a third. Dead. And then another third. Dead. And a planet that is going to be decimated unrecognizable, all these beautiful pictures that we have, green hillsides with forests, black, all the grass gone, earthquakes totally disfiguring cities, mountains don't look the same anymore, islands look different, economic system totally decimated. And a tyrant that has the entire world under his thumb. And in the midst of this, no matter what you believe about whether the rapture occurs before the tribulation time or after, nonetheless, there's going to be this massive amount of believers that emerge out of this time period that God's going to save. And that means death. You get saved in this time period, it means martyrdom. That's what it means. You're marked. So feel that. And you know how you and I do when we're in the midst of a trial that goes on and on and on. And then you begin to sink. And you go, everything you know in your head starts to get tested, right? Now what's your comfort at the back of that? Somewhere your theology has to come up and say, God in this is what? Okay, he's glorified, but he's in control, right? And by that, he's going to glorify himself. But he's, I need to know that, man, this thing isn't spinning out of control. So I think the reason John has articulated so heavily here the emphasis on throne is because of what's coming. And he wants his readers to remember something. Because somebody is going to live through this. And somebody's going to be reading the blueprint step by step as they're seeing the next thing. And they're going to have to remember chapter 4. Because chapter 19 comes only a brief seven years, but in the middle of suffering, seven years is a long time. If you make it. So... 
there needs to be a heavy emphasis that somebody is on the throne. You tell me, what comes to your mind? What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the word throne? What? King. And a king is ruler. He's in control. He's a sovereign. We're not talking about our country, president, electoral votes, and all that kind of equality. We're talking about a king, monarchy. The king says, go. In the Old Testament, the king put his signet ring upon something or he sealed the document. It was, this is what it is. It's just it. And so, this is the sovereign king on his throne. And later in chapter 19, the heir to the throne, the king himself is coming, victorious. Somebody has to be in control to make sure that that's going to happen. So I think he wants it to be very clear for believers to realize that God is on the throne in the midst of such devastating judgments. And by comparison, this is immediately applicable for us. If we'll catch this vision. Our own chaos and suffering now. God is on the throne. And what we're going to see, he is on an utterly holy throne. And we're going to talk about what that word means, holy. So, the three points, Christ reveals the vision of the Father, the Spirit gives and enables the vision of the Father, and then third, the majestic glory of God in unparalleled splendor and absoluteness is ruling by sovereign will. So let's look at the first one. Christ reveals the vision of the Father in verse 1. That is, He shows us the glory of God. Isn't this just like Christ? How about John 14? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man is going to come to the Father except through me. Or Philip says a little later, well, then show us the Father. Man would love to see the Father. And Jesus says, have I been with you this long that you have not seen? When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am showing you His glory. And so Christ brings John into this vision. After these things, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking to me. That's back in chapter 1. John's in the Spirit. And a vision is upon him. Remember where John was? He's in prison at, on the island of Patmos. He's exiled. Now think about this. Here's John in his suffering in a dark, dank, dungeon-type setting, alone, isolated, cold, I don't know, he's probably not very well clothed. He might have rats crawling on him. I mean, that'd get irritating after a while, pulling your hair out. I don't know, he's, he's probably not getting in and out burgers sent to him either. So there's a lot of things coming in on John as he's suffering. And all of a sudden, the Spirit comes on him and he's lifted up and out of that. And somebody speaks like a trumpet blast. And he turns, and it's the living Christ. 
And Christ here is not veiled in the weakness of humanity. He's displayed in His glory. And so he uses all these terms to describe Him. They're just off the chart of a person looking like this. And then he gives him seven messages to churches. And we read here, after these things, that's the seven messages to the churches. I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet, spoke to me, and he said this, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Christ says, let me take you higher than where you are. And I'm going to show you. And he's basically saying, I'm going to show you the whole book. Everything that's going to take place. And notice the word he uses here. Must take place. No matter what our unbelieving world and its technological tailspin that we're in, with all the gizmos and things that we're just enamored by, says to where seemingly silence has fallen on the promises of God, Jesus says these things must take place. There is no other necessity that can occur. They have to. And so he brings him up. Christ brings this revelation to him. And then secondly, the Spirit gives and enables the vision of the Father. And it's always this way. The Spirit is immediately wanting to point us to Christ. Christ brings us to the Father. Revelation comes from the Spirit. Verse 2, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne. Now maybe at first glance when you read through that, you don't catch all of that. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne. And it's like he wants to freeze our thoughts here. There's a throne. And it was standing in heaven, exalted, and one was sitting on the throne. So picture a king on his throne. But this is no ordinary throne. And the descriptions that we're going to look at for this throne stretch the limits of human imagination. It's amazing. But none else would do. So the Spirit of God gives and enables the vision of the Father, or He enables us to see the glory of God. The reason every human being runs around chasing the glory that's on this earth is because they can't see this glory. And until the Spirit of God Blast into their dead heart, they will not see this glory. And they won't see Christ's glory, which is God's glory. So, here the Spirit brings John to see God's glory. But the one 
seated on the throne, very quickly, you can look at Hebrews 1, is none other, verse 3, after Christ, who is the radiance of His glory, we just said that, He's the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His nature, and Christ upholds all things by the word of His power, when he got done with his purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now think about that phrase. This is the description of God the Father. The majesty on high. An abstract word. Majesty on high. Anybody... In our world, who's a leader, been called that lately? And could they possibly wear that? Because the last time I checked, they all look just like me, and they're getting older just like me, and they're getting frail and weak, and eventually they're going to go in a chair or on a bed, and then they go in the dirt. But this one is the majesty on high. Look at uh, Hebrews 8, verse 1. The main point of what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. So that's who we've come before. The majestic glories. Uh, 2 Peter 1. Peter describes when uh, the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus' glory was shown. And Peter says that we heard the voice from the majestic Glory. Wow. So that's where we are. Now. He's on the throne. And he's in perfect resolution. He will get the readers to the other side of this long description of Revelation 6 through 19. He will get them there. It is going to happen. So our main topic, the majestic glory of God in unparalleled splendor and absoluteness is ruling by sovereign will. And by application today, this is the one ruling. The governing course of your life. So the next set of news that you find out, he's there. Unmovably, he's there. Not uncompassionately as a father. He is compassionate as a father. And your savior is the good shepherd. But unruling, I mean unmovingly ruling in sovereign control. So let's look at it. And he who was sitting, the person, the being, was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. This is interesting because the language that was used here, we don't have technical language to describe the stones. We can't find parallels, so it's a little difficult. To, and translations can really differ on this. You can find different 
Um, some translations have even said rubies and diamonds, but it's some kind of red type glow that is seen here. But the second one, I think, is, is clearer, a little easier to understand. He says this, and there was a rainbow around the throne. And some translate this like a halo. So it's some kind of emanating light that is like emerald in appearance. Have anybody seen an emerald? Uh, I mean, just a beautiful, I mean, it's just, just, I mean, it's like, wow. I mean, the color is, you know, you can see through it, but it's green. And, and honestly, John's using uh, similes here. He says it's like, he's not saying this is an emerald. He's not saying the color is emerald or the color is sardius or uh, I forget the other stone that some other translated. But it, it's not that. He's, I mean, it's like he's stretching. He's, he's seen something that is so, it's just unbelievable. It's emanating light coming around the throne. It's not just white light that we see in his manifestation when he comes to earth and manifest his glory. It's, it's like lightning, remember? It's, it's so bright that it's blinding white, but here it's not just white light. It's, it's something else. Why? Why this light? We, what do we use light for? To see, to reveal. If you're, if you're dark, if it's, it's a dark, area or if you say I'm in a dark time God shed light here so I can see pull back so I can see you know why God uses light to cover to veil think about that the most revealing aspect of our understanding God uses to cover himself don't we have a modern song by Chris Tomlin? He wraps himself in light. He clothes himself in light. Right? Or the hymn, Immortal, Invisible. Tis only the splendor of light that hides you. Right? That's God. That's the one on the throne. So... Let that dazzle your mind for a minute. It should. But verse 4 through 7, which, by the way, I'd have to ask you, do you see him? Do you see him? Man, when you read this text, does your heart leap? That's the glory of God. Or is that? Because if that's the way it is, it means you're lost. That's what that means. Because when God's glory is utterly meaningless to us, it's just because He hasn't made us alive. So beg Him to make you alive and give you a glimpse of His Son so you can see Him. So now you know why he's called the majesty on high, just from that description. But verses 4 through 7, the beings around the throne, and this is so important. God has placed 
Now think about this. He created beings, and we're going to look at these beings. They are so powerful and beyond us in their capabilities. But he created beings around him because his glory is so great, he surrounded himself with tremendous beings to reflect his glory. Amazing. We are the pinnacle of God's creation on earth. Made in the image of God to reflect His glory here, but not so there. He's created special beings to reflect His glory here. He's above angels. And so verse 4, around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. So, here we are. These 24 elders and commentators are all over the place on who these represent. Some say they're 12 uh, patriarchs from the 12 tribes of Israel. Some say that the other 12 are 12 apostles. And uh, then they, some say they're angels. You know what? I don't know who they are. He didn't tell us who they are. So I swear I leave it. I don't know who they are. You know who they are? Good for you. I don't know who they are. But the significance is not who they are. Otherwise, he has said who they are. The significance is that he's given them 24 thrones. That's significant here, and it's very significant for the next part of the passage. The throne is the symbol of authority, rulership, and power. So he's given them delegated thrones of authority. And as far as their identity, possibly there could be some hint with that they are clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. I, I don't know. The, the clothed in white garments seems to be typically that's as a justified person, so maybe they're humans, but I just don't think so. Not, not based on the, the scene here is it's just not about human figures. But the crown is indicative to their authority because in chapter 6, verse 2, the introduction of this, this person who's going to be the ruler, the Antichrist, he's given a crown. Everybody gives him. This authority is granted to him and he rules the earth. So the crown is significant in that regard. But then let's look at verse 5. Because I want to I kind of go through this and set the stage for the grand finale at the end. Verse 5, um, the Spirit of God, but before that, out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. Remember what's here. This is the presence, the immediate presence of God. And there is a weightiness to God's presence there is a gravity that comes with his glory do you remember exodus 19 when israel as a nation was before mount sinai and god had come to manifest his presence there and we know when moses came down his face was gloriously shining because he'd been in that presence but when he was present on the mountain 
What was the mountain doing? What? Quaking, thundering, lightning, peals of thunder. Anybody here been in the immediate presence of lightning? I mean, like from here to the parking lot? My bride? <laughs> yeah, we heard that, didn't we? Anybody else? What's it make you do? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I mean, it makes you want to hit the floor, find a rock, cry, die, something. Because the noise is just, it's deafening. It's stunning. It's so out of the ordinary. It shakes you. And then the light is right there. So God, and we, we respond like that because we're, of all the normality that we go through, the humdum and finally, something is so far out of our reach, it shakes us. Something so much greater than us is right here. Or how about a forest fire? Anybody here ever been in, a, in the midst of a forest fire? And I don't mean brush fire, grass fire. I mean a raging crown fire. It'll make the hair on your back stand up. It's unbelievable. It also make your podium shake. <laughs> I was at this church in Alabama. And it was my parents' church, and I was, uh, when we did this church plant, and he had a, a pulpit there, wooden, wooden top on it, and I don't know what I did or what I said, but I, I put my hands down real hard like that, and the top of it lifted up, and almost took off like an airplane, just <laughs> like, whoa, my goodness, so it's like a gaping hole, and <laughs> put it back down, but anyway, you never know what's going to happen. So... But the reason this happens is because God's presence is here. Look at uh, Revelation 8, verse 5. It's, it's, uh, we read in Hebrews that God is a consuming fire. And so the analogies here are to represent the enormousness of God and the weightiness of His glory. Um, Revelation 8, 5. Then the angel... This is the prayers of the saints have come up. And man, the judgments are the next set of judgments. The seventh seal initiating the seven trumpets. The next wave's coming. And what happens? The angel took the censer and he filled it with the fire of the altar and he threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. And then in Revelation 11 verse 19. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, not the earthly one, but the one that the pattern was adopted from, the heavenly temple of God. And the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. And then again, Revelation 16, verse 17 then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. What's done? The judgment is done. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there was a great earthquake such as there had not been since man came to be on the earth. So great an earthquake was it and so mighty. And at those instances, it's God initiating judgment, justice. It's God's activity. 
So in God's presence and in his activity, his glory is displayed in a massive way. And there's weightiness with his glory. So that's why when John looks, this is going on. Man, it's glory. It's great glory. But then there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Seven being the number of perfection. Most commentators believe this is the Spirit of God. It's the Holy Spirit representing Him. Seven spirits all around the throne, but representative of God's omnipresence. They are the perfection of His own Spirit. And so fitting that the Holy Spirit is right here he is, his activity is continuous and directly in accord with the will of the one on the throne. He's right there. So now let's look at the four living creatures. Verses 6 through 7. And before the throne. Again, this is all about the throne and the one on the throne and what he has surrounding him. So, verse 6, And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. He didn't say this was a glass sea. He said, only thing I can describe it, it's like glass, and it's like crystal glass that you can see through. And he says, it's a sea. It's like an ocean. Before the throne. And there's a lot of variations. What is this? But one commentator, I think, actually this was a commentator, a Greek scholar, but I, I really like what he says here. And he, he viewed this, and given the context, especially the context of what's coming, I think it's fitting here. And the context eventually we're going to see is the utter otherness of this majestic God. So he says this, it is a symbol conveying God's ineffable, absolute holiness. Holiness in its original sense of separateness. And in this sense, it would represent an ocean of God's holiness that made his throne utterly unapproachable by imperfection and evil. There's an ocean before this glorious being. To where people like you and me, without some kind of massive help, could never approach. Nor would we want to. Which is the point behind Israel saying, you go talk to him, I'm not getting near him. <laughs> because most of that people group were unbelieving. But isn't it amazing, just with this thought, this is an aside, that in Hebrews 4, we have such a high priest that we can come boldly into the presence of this throne room to ask for mercy and grace and our help, help in time of need. Because God calls those who are in Christ sons and daughters. 
and he welcomes us. So this place, we are going to see. Wow. Do you think that the theater will be of any appeal once seeing this? And so by connection, shouldn't we be gazing here until this is formed in our hearts and we don't want that stuff? Not because there's anything wrong with it. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that the glory by comparison is no comparison. Which is why a lot of our troubles exist. Because we don't have a large enough vision of His glory. Because this vision is important to hang on to and trust God in the midst of suffering. Because I trust and believe Him when I my heart is around such significant glory that he possesses. But when he becomes small in my vision, I lose him. And I doubt and despair and sink. Because he just doesn't seem big enough to hold me when fog is all around. So that's what I think the glassy sea-like place represents. But now let's look at the four living creatures. And man, I'm running out of time. Um, the four living creatures. This is so important. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. What's the ESV say? And the reason I'm using my ESV is because my battery's about to die on my Kindle. But I had, what's it say? It says... Uh, um, it says before or before the throne and all around the throne or something like that. I think it's an unfortunate translation because and what they're doing is is they're trying to identify. I think they're trying to identify these these four living creatures with the four living creatures back in Ezekiel one that are mentioned there. And there's a lot of similarity there, and there's yet enough difference that I don't know if they're the same. They could be because there's enough similarity, and it's okay if they are. But there's enough difference that they they might not be. And I don't think that's John's point either. But well, here's another point: is that Revelation is progressing here so that everything gets clearer as you get to the New Testament. So, but nonetheless, his point is not to connect them back that way necessarily, but to stagger us here. And here's what the text literally says, that they are, they are in the midst of the throne. <laughs> How do you do that? <laughs> and around the throne. And I think we ought to just let it stand just like that in its complexity. Because he adds to it this next thing. They've got, they are full of eyes in front and behind. And his point is not for us to see a bunch of eyeballs plastered all over some funny looking creature. I don't know what they look like, uh, but they're not, I mean, they're creatures. He, he tells us a little bit about them. But his point here is that they're all seeing. God has created creatures that are all seeing. They've got their eyes on the throne. They can see God like you and I can't see Him. And they see us. They see the judgment. As a matter of fact, they're very closely connected in judgments later. They deal them out. But think about this. This is so important for His final point. They see God 
like we don't see him. We're getting a human description here by John trying to tell us what he saw with the language that we'll understand. And it's enough. It's a massive dose and we should look at it. But this is so important for what's coming later and I'm going to bring us back to it. But they see him through. They see like we don't see him. And Verse 8, we get a, or verse 7, we get a little fuller description. The first creature was like a lion. The second creature, like a like calf. He doesn't say it's a lion, it's a calf. He says like. And the third creature had a face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. There's an old rabbinic saying. It's, it's, uh, it's at least as early back to the 3rd century A.D., the mightiest among the birds is the eagle. The mightiest among domestic animals is the bull. The mightiest among the beasts is the lion. And the mightiest among all is man. So we could point to the great power from earthly creatures that we know of. He's saying these are very powerful creatures that God has surrounded himself with. Now. The point that I think we need to funnel to and keep in mind is the third part of this section. And the description we've been giving is the majestic glory of God in unparalleled splendor and absoluteness is ruling by God. Sovereign will. And the third point of this section is the activity around the throne. God has created beings that do not reflect our weakness, but reflect His great power and abilities. And this is their activity. Verses 8 through 11. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. You notice this is the second time he said this. They're full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say something. You know why I think he said this twice about what they are able to see? Because you and I have two eyes that we can see physically. And then we have the eyes of our heart. With which we lay hold of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And our affections arise from the vision we see with the eyes of our heart, our inner man. But they have eyes that are full and through. And they see God much greater. And we get tired of worshiping Him. Because we don't see Him well enough. You get it? So with our limitations, is it more important to take a passage like this and stare at it and meditate 
until it soaks in our fibers and our limited eyes begin to get a big vision of who it is that our allegiance is to so that we don't tire in what we're about to see them say. What do they say? And I'm going to add to this. How do you think they say it based on what we just saw? With all the light, with all the noise, with all the glory, how do you think they say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is. It's to come. How do you think they say it? And the text says specifically, day and night, rest, they don't have from saying this. They don't have it. This is amazing. I mean, my heart's popping. This is amazing. He has created creatures with such great ability and vision for one sole purpose, to see God and then to bounce back words that are the same thing over and over and over again. And they're not bored. As a matter of fact, because they have perfect natures, not tainted by sin. Boredom comes out of sinful natures and not being in God's presence. They are not bored. They are eternally and infinitely measured happiness at just seeing and saying this. It makes them happy. Why? First, His name. The Lord God, the Almighty, His power. And then, off of one feature, just because He was, He is, and He will be. They are lost in the eternality of God. Should we be any other than lost? It's okay. It's okay to ponder and just get lost in the eternality of God. As a matter of fact, you were made to do that. And then, the 24 elders will fall, uh, I'm in the wrong word, verse 9, when the living creatures, here's also what they're doing. When they give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives Forever. They just said the same thing again. They're ascribing this to Him. When this happens, this causes something to erupt in these other beings around the throne. The 24 elders worship. They fall down before Him who sits on the throne. I don't know what you recall, but when I recall 
human beings falling on their face before a being. It's worship. And when God is before a human being, his child, he has no other response. He worships. So what they're watching, these four creatures, you get it? The 24 elders are watching. They're watching the throne, and then they're watching these four living creatures. And when the four living creatures, when they worship, it just causes them to worship. Can you see it? We're supposed to look here and worship. We're supposed to. And what do they do? They fall down and worship Him who sits on the throne. And they will worship Him who lives forever and ever. They're lost in the same thing. The eternality of God. And notice what they do. They will cast their crowns before the throne. Remember the crowns that it talked about earlier? Crowns are symbols of power and authority. But when they see this one who's on the throne, it's like, I know where this came from. All authority is yours. That's what they're saying. All power and authority is yours. Man, they see him. This is yours. And they are happy to do that. Now contrast that with our situation before we bow the knee to Christ. Because no one comes into God's presence without a bowed knee. Before we bowed the knee to Christ, we said, it's mine. It's my kingdom. It may be my little house. It's my kingdom. It may be my car. It may be my job. It may be my position in sports or my position in celebrity or in the nation. It's my kingdom. And I'll fight you for it. What a mess. It's such a delusion of our vision of Him. Because to look at His glory is to say, oh, why would I fight? This, there's no one like you. No one is in the position of you. And I'm happy here. But when they see the living creatures, the four living creatures, and they throw their crowns there. They also are immediately saying, Worthy are you. Worthy are you. They say this over and over and over. We find this in the book of Revelation. Worthy is later the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. I, got, I used to be really, I'm out of time. I used to be really, really stiff. And I thought, I, I just had a problem with 
you know, the songs, it would say, worthy, 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 worthy is the Lamb, over and over again. I said, man, that, you know, that's, I was missing it, because I didn't see this. There's no other response, but you can't tire of saying it if, it, if he's before you. You see the difference? The reason we get tired is because we're not seeing him. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power because you created all things. Just think about the creation. You created all things. And because, notice this, this is huge. Notice what, what John records here. And because of your will, they existed. You created all things. And because of your will, they existed and were created. Back of his spoken word was his sovereign will. He just willed it so effortlessly. You and I can't will anything, but he just wills it so. So in our small sufferings, and the only reason I say small because they feel great, but small in comparison to Revelation 6 through 19. It is small by that comparison. Humanity and its atrocities has never seen anything so staggering as that. But in our suffering, rest in that word, will. Know that, that he loves us tenderly. And the pain, because for them, it's going to mean getting their heads chopped off. But it's under the umbrella of his will to bring us into glory, and we're just going to trust him. He's going to bring us to the place where we see Him. No pain, because that won't exist here. No sorrow, no boredom, no suffering, no nothing like that is going to exist here. So He gives this vision to carry them through. You take this vision, meditate on it. Let it fill your heart and be reminded. Ask the Lord to remind you of this when you're suffering. Bring me back so I can trust you, that you love me, you carry me through this. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for such a massive glimpse of who you are. We just adore you. And we ask you to forgive us for failing, first of all, not to see you enough, and second of all, for growing tired in the weakness of our our flesh, from being able to hold on to this vision. But Holy Spirit, be gracious to us and ever provide us with this view of our God and the Savior who has brought us right to our God. For your glory and our much-needed good. Amen.